0: Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Thanks for joining me today on America Can We Talk. Today we're going to talk about the National Day of Prayer compared with the California new law targeting priests and the privacy of the confessional. Number two, James Carafano, the Heritage Foundation, joins me to talk about President Trump's immigration options. And last, militant transgenderists at Google and everywhere else. Stay tuned. I
1: am a man.
0: Debbie Georgiatis, host of
1: America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. America Can We Talk is sponsored by GC Works, a Dallas-based company performing advanced technology research in the oil and gas industry.
0: And welcome again to America Can We Talk. Thanks so much for tuning in. Well, today is a National Day of Prayer, and President Trump put up a beautiful proclamation a couple of days ago honoring the National Day of Prayer, and it's on our website, AmericaCanWeTalk.org. Two quick thoughts about it. One was that the National Day of Prayer was actually passed by Congress back in 1988, where they Uh, designated the first Thursday of May to be National Day of Prayer. And the thought just flashed across my mind, I wonder if you could get the Congress of this year, 2019, to even pass something honoring a National Day of Prayer. I am not sure you could, but the wonderful sentiments that President Trump put in his National Day of Prayer included just simple things, uh, just beautiful things, about giving thanks to Almighty God for the bountiful blessings he's bestowed on our country, to ask for his counsel, to recognize our dependence on God's love, to guide our families, our communities, and our country, just full of just wonderful, beautiful thoughts, really, about the notion, the intertwining of, of our American heritage, American identity, uh, with the heritage of prayer and our country being founded on religious freedom. I'd like to contrast that with a new law that is actually it's not a law yet, it's a bill in the state of California. It is pending in the California State Senate. This bill in California would require Catholic priests to violate their, the sacrament of their confessional and report to authorities if someone during confession, which is in the Catholic faith a sacrament, during confession admits to sexual assault of a child. Now I'll tell you, as a quick backdrop Many states, almost every state, I think, has in place laws that require certain people who have regular contact with children through their work, school teachers, preschools, organizations like that, have in place a law simply requiring adults, if they are aware of a child in their care haven't been a victim of sexual assault, or they have a reasonable assumption or reasonable um, suspicion that a child's been a victim of sexual assault, they're required to report that. And that has been the case for many years, that the, this is a way that the authorities can figure out, what, because uh, kids often aren't going to come forward, and oftentimes perpetrators are in the home. So this is an existing law, and priests are covered by that law, as are lawyers. But what this law would do, this new bill pending in California would say it takes away the, the clergy's exemption from the reporting that writ, right now is written into that state's law and most states law that simply says, if the clergy finds out about sexual abuse of a child through confession, the, the confessional uh, sacrament, that the priest does not have to report the penitent. And I have to tell you, folks, you could Any state could make a law that says anything a priest hears in any confession must be the priest is obligated to report to the authorities. In no other instance except sexual abuse of a child is California saying that they are going to essentially put the burden of the state on Catholic priests and say, you know, you can choose between honoring your commitment to your church and your faith and your penitent and remain silent. But if you do that, and we find out you did that, it is a prosecutable offense, an offense that actually could lead to jail time. So the priest has to decide, follow California law, turn in a parishioner, or honor the priest's commitment to the uh, to the Catholic faith, to the practice of the confessional, and keep matters quiet in violation of California law. And you know, it's just, I, I don't know where it'll go, the Catholic Church is fighting it, but the larger point I wanted to make about it is, it is a signal of the disrespect for religion that has permeated much of American culture. The disdain for the seriousness of the, the, the not just the Catholic faith, but I assume other faiths will also face a similar a problem. Because what the California senator who proposed it, and as the bill is sitting in the California Senate, is really saying is he doesn't give much credence, much weight, much importance to the process of a penitent going through the confessional process with a priest, willing to dishonor that in order to pursue a, it has to be, a minute, minute number of cases in which a priest is going to come forward and make that, that um, turn that penitent over to the state. To me, the law is bad, the proposal of the law is bad enough. The signal it sends about disdain for religious freedom is worse. And that, my friends, is today's First Five. I want to turn now to our interview I mentioned before we started. We have James Carafano on the phone, and I'll tell you a bit about him. He's been on the show a couple of times. He is just a a widely sought-after expert, he's he's on national media all the time. Um, He is with the Heritage Foundation. He's the Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy. He's a 25-year Army veteran, uh, achieved the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. He is a graduate of West Point, uh, even more important, he's an, a graduate of Georgetown University. That's my school, so I, I like that. Um, he has, actually has a master's degree and a doctorate from Georgetown and a master's degree in strategy from the U.S. Army War College. He's an author. He's a, a nationally recognized expert on national security matters. And I want to talk to him today about the where we are in immigration, some great ideas he had in a couple of recent columns. So welcome, James Carrafano.
1: Hey, Hoya Saxa. <laughs> For- <laughs> for those of who don't know that's like a georgetown thing
0: it's like a georgetown thing actually to be clear i didn't go to undergrad law school but still yes love georgetown i love every time i go uh, back it's still hoya saxa yeah that is right that is right sir yep. yep love georgetown i love going back and visiting washington i, I just i love the law school is right on capitol hill which was so well situated for uh, for a law school to be really near the capitol and really near the supreme court but that's not why we're talking today. Okay, so I want to turn to, you have, uh, you're a wonderful writer, written books and articles. You had two articles I wanted to talk about um, that really relate to what we're um, facing in America at our southern border. The first one, and I, we mentioned this, I think, briefly a couple of days ago, but President Trump has made a request to Congress for emergency border funds. And he's asked for $4.5 billion from Congress, and this is against the backdrop of having Congress never agreeing to fund the wall in the previous battle that led to a shutdown. But she has some interesting thoughts about he's actually asked for $4.5 billion to deal with border problems, but didn't ask for any funding within that for the wall. So what, what do you think his thinking is in this, why he would make that request?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting request. Folks might wonder why I'm even doing this. Talked about my background, a lot of it, which was in... Uh, defense, because I was in military for a long time, but I've been in Heritage for 16 years. I started, and I continue to work on the homeland security portfolio. And you know, part of the department's mission has always been border immigration security. So, and Heritage is a great think tank. We work on everything, domestic and foreign policy, and immigration and border security is one of those terrific issues. There's a legal side, there's an economic side, there's you know, politics involved, and 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 security things. And you know, my job's always been to kind of rope that all together, which is fascinating job and i really love it and and that's why i look at things like this a little differently because i i try to kind of pull the thread and look at all these different perspectives so what's interesting about this is it's an, an emergency request so it's a supplemental funding request it doesn't go through the normal budget cycle basically the president's saying is i have an unforecasted need for money in the national interest and and, and he turns to congress and say i need this well the context of that of course is he did this exact same thing um, a couple of months ago um, when he said there's a crisis at the border and in the budget negotiations, he wanted money to build a wall and add security at the border and, and Congress rejected it. And the, 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 the mantra of the opponents in Congress was, Oh, you're ju- you just want a wall cause it's a campaign promise. There is no crisis. The, people actually yep. said that there is no <laughs> crisis at the border. So what's interesting now is because we didn't deal with it then, the crisis at the border has actually gotten worse, and we're on, on, on track to have a record number of people illegally enter the country this year. We could could actually wind up with a, a, a 1 million person growth in the illegally present population. And so the president turns back to Congress and says, you know, I've got more people come across the border. I have to house them. I have to, you know, take care of them. I have to get them medical and food. I, I That money is not in the budget. So he makes another emergency supplemental request that that puts his critics in congress in an interesting place because if they fund this it's like well you said there was no crisis (laughs) and right if right If, if they if they don't fund it everybody knows there's a crisis and they know they're just playing politics and and he took away every possible excuse they could have not to fund this because he didn't ask for a nickel for the wall He asked for money basically to take care of the people that illegally try to enter the country. And so the one thing that his critics have complained about over and over again is, oh, the the humanitarian suffering of all these people, this is going to help deal with all that. And again, if they turn it down, they're exacerbating the humanitarian issues that they're complaining about. So I, I think he's done two things. One is it's a reasonable request. Because it's actually necessary, but the other is he is he he has and he continues to paint a really stark division between what he wants to do and what his opponents want to do, and and I know they say, look, we're not for open borders, but the reality is, is if if you don't want to deal with a crisis, if you don't want to deport people who are here illegally, if you insist on having sanctuary cities, if you want to abolish ICE, which is the organization's responsible for deporting people, explain to me how you're not for open borders and explain to me how the president hasn't just drawn a line in the sand and say you're either for securing the borders of the United States and respecting our immigration laws or you're not.
0: It is a, I agree with you wholeheartedly, James Carafano, wholeheartedly, it's a great strategy because the Democrats, especially you focus on the humanitarian assistance, which was supposed to be $3.3 billion of this money, this special request he's made was to go to humanitarian assistance. It is the the singular issue that so many Democrats complain about, the border, and they try to blame the uh, border patrol or the existence of a border or the existence of border security for the humanitarian crisis. But the fact is, we have, as you say, a million people anticipated in in this next year, additional people crossing our border, coming into America, many of them impoverished, most of them impoverished. And so it it just puts them in a terrible pickle, which I, i finding it very very entertaining <laughs>
1: you know people just look and they, well they go well you're at a conservative when, first of all we're not a republican the heritage is yes. a partisan foundation but you're at a conservative foundation um, you guys are tough on immigration you're, you're just saying that but look we are we're a research foundation I had I sent two of my analysts into Mexico to walk with the caravans to find out what was going on wow. I I had I had people go to the border I've I've talked with the former head of the Border Patrol, the former head of Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Uh, uh, The the former officials who were in the Department of Homeland Security. I was on the transition team for the Department of Homeland Security. uh, And and so I talked to the outgoing officials and I talked to the incoming officials. So this isn't just Jim Carafano sitting in his office in Washington, D.C., spurting off the conservative talking points. This is based on, well, first of all, we've been on this issue for 16 years, but this is based on, we've gone to the border and we've seen what happened. And and we're just talking about how that is affecting border security and immigration in this country. You may not like it. It may not be politically convenient for you to hear that, but it's it's not partisan talking points It's just the black and white reality of what's going on.
0: It absolutely is. And you mentioned the number of people crossing the border uh, anticipated to be going up this year. There's also been a story. I want to turn to immigration in just a moment, but one more point on the border. There is a, a lot of reporting about the idea that the people presenting themselves at the border, there's a vast, a huge increase in the number of family units apprehended at the border, people presenting at the border claiming they, are, they have a child or a, a baby, a child or several kids with them claiming to be the parents of that child. So just some quick numbers. in fiscal 2016 and 2017 the total number of total number of family units apprehended at the border was about this is family units was about 77,000 in 2018 it was up to 107,000 so it went 77,000 to 107,000 and now first six months of fiscal 2019 the number of family units has shot to almost 190,000 and many of these as I'm sure you know are people presenting with children and so they're trying to make themselves fall into the asylum category where we can't put the kids we can't hold the kids at the border then up being let loose into our into our homeland but many of them are fraudulent presentations the child is not even a it isn't really the child of the adult who's trying to bring the child in that alone is an astonishing humanitarian crisis
1: so how we got here is um in the you know, 1990s, we established what's called expedited removal, which is if, if you're caught illegally into the United States within 100 miles of the border within 14 days, you can be put through a process where they make a quick determination that you're not an American citizen, and then they send return you to your home country. Now, if you have paid $10,000 to a human smuggler to get into the United States, that's a pretty powerful deterrent. But we, uh, what's happened is people have discovered this loophole, in part because activists in Latin America and in the United States have been broadcasting this, that because of a judicial ruling, the Flores Agreement, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, and how we interpret certain laws, yep. we have, if when you're presented as a family, and you claim asylum status, you are treated differently. You cannot be put in expedited removal. You have to go through the asylum claim process. Which, which takes longer than, than government can realistically detain you. And so you get released into the interior of the United States, and it, you, you probably never even show up for a court date. Ninety percent of the asylum claims that are, that are made, according to Homeland Security statistics, are, are not granted. So 90 percent of them are invalid. So you're right, there's an enormous amount of fraud um, and most of these people are really just economic immigrants looking for a way to get into the United States and jump the line. That's And it's, it's just – it's a fairness issue. It's also a humanitarian issue because what, what the, the other side doesn't talk about, all they talk about is, oh, these vast number of poor refugees. There's a tiny fraction of poor refugees, but because a vast number of people are clogging the system, the government can't even – Effectively help the deserving few. So you're a traumatized family that actually fled an MS 13 gang who killed your father, raped your mother, and beat up the kids, and you are here cowering in fear for your life, and you're stuck in line between 99 people that just want to come in and live with their relatives in in Wyoming.
0: Yes, and the, the description you made of the person who actually had been the victim of an MS, uh, of an attack from whoever it was, and the, the husband's killed and the wife is raped, and all, those people are actually may qualify for our asylum uh, under our asylum laws. And right. I th- many people know this, but we don't have a category in our asylum laws that allows America to grant asylum to people simply because of poverty. And I say this all the time, if the left wants to say that we need to have asylum expanded so that we give people asylum simply because of poverty, they need to try to get that law through Congress and explain to the American people you know, how we're going to pay for this and, and what will happen to our asylum system. But the, it's a great point you're making that the few truly would qualify under our asylum laws to be granted asylum are stuck in line behind people who have, have no chance of qualifying for asylum. It's a great point.
1: And look, I mean, if we, if we just essentially go to say, and they've said that, I mean, people have said, you know, if you're here illegal, you're already, you're already an American or you know, anybody should come here who wants to. You know, according to the latest polls, about a billion people want to move here. Yes. If they could just come here, a billion people would leave here. The Americans see that as patently unfair. First of all, and this isn't Republican, Democrat. This isn't conservative, liberal. This is when you take the politics out of it and who you're voting for and everything else. So you just ask Americans. They think it's unfair that, that they should have to bear the fiscal burden of illegal immigration. Why should they have to pay taxes for everything else and on top of that pay for people that come here illegally? They think it's unfair that people can jump the line and for the people that are law-abiding and waiting their turn to come in the country. They think it's unfair that people can exploit the humanitarian crisis and disadvantage truly deserving victims—that um, bothers Americans, and, and I think they're right to be bothered by that. And the problem is, is the 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 only answer the president's opponents have is, oh, just let them do that.
0: Yes. Yes, and I do think the American people, in fact, I saw a great article about this, the American people are with the president and those who say, we have to have a more secure border, we have to enforce our laws, we have to have asylum laws that we follow and that we turn away people who don't meet them. And a lot of people, and I know the Heritage Foundation is nonpartisan, but there are people on the left in America who have, they recognize that they are the American people are with the idea we have to have secure borders, we have to have asylum laws, but the left is struggling with, they have a lot of their voters and supporters who, say, who don't want those laws enforced. So that is an interesting thing. President Trump, back to our first discussion, is brilliant to try to point out to the American people who's in favor of having secure borders and an and efficient and fair and honest in, in, in immigration system with integrity, and who's not. It was brilliant. But now I want to jump if I can because we'll, we, uh, you know, as you know, with all these shows always go faster, more, and more topics than time. You wrote another great piece, and by for our listeners, all the pieces I'm speaking about are up at our website, AmericaCanWeTalk.org, on the homepage under Shows. Scroll down, list of links, and you can find all the articles we're talking about. This one, also by James Carafano, with whom we are speaking. Uh, Trump needs to convince Americans he can solve our immigration mess. You have some great ideas for things President Trump can do to inspire Americans, not just to be with him on border security, but more broadly speaking, to try to correct some of our immigration mess. Would you just share some of those ideas?
1: Well, I mean, you know, some of them are pretty bold, because I do think that, that and again, it's not a partisan comment, I think Americans have a choice, and we should clarify what that choice is. Um, if the president wants to demonstrate he's really serious about enforcing the law, uh, and if the other side says, hey, we're okay with that then one of the things you can do is there are by again by the government's measure there are one million people in the United States who have a lawful deportation order so they're they're not refugees they're not they've exhausted every legal means to stay here and and the a judge has told them after every consideration you have to leave this country one million people. And I think a, a, a legitimate goal is the United States, the president should pledge, I'm going to go find those million people and I'm going to kick them out of the country. I mean, I think that he shows that he's serious about enforcing the law. And for other people, I so said, what, what is your problem with that? Do, do you think that that's like saying, you know, you haven't been paying your mortgage? <laughs> should, should you tell the bank, just forget it, right?
0: Yeah. You, you,
1: I mean, I want to see people stand up and say that's unfair and, and you know, that's immoral and everything. But how is yep. that wrong? I mean, you, they've exhausted every appeal. Um, you know, another, another idea was, another thing we should do is, you know, we have these sanctuary cities and say, well, we don't want to enforce the laws. We don't want to work the federal government. What people forget is there are actually lots of cities and states around the country that actually cooperate with the federal government on immigration enforcement because yep. it's a public safety issue that they, they, they goes after bad actors, MS-13, other criminals, you know, gets, and you know, gets them out of their community. So the president should say, you know what? Forget the sanctuary cities. I'm going to partner with the people that work with the federal government. And we're going to spend six months, and we're going to go after MS-13 around the country and show how many of these guys that we can, and girls, that we can clean bad actors, that we can clean up, get out of this country and show what can be done when we work together as opposed to when you, you have this kind of notion about, well, we're going to protect people by a sanctuary city. All a sanctuary city does is say, if you're a criminal, go there, right? Cause exactly. Nobody, because it's harder for the government to come after you.
0: You used the expression in the article you wrote, the transnational gang activity. But the the astonishing thing about the border insecurity at the southern border, we obviously have people we've been mentioning, people impoverished, people who are actually fleeing persecution. But we do have, and Americans are aware, we have gang activity, we have drug traffickers, we have human traffickers, we have Middle Eastern terrorists, all sorts of really bad guys. I love the picture of the president, as you're saying, working with the states that will comply with federal law and saying, we're going to find these people. especially identify the transnational gangs, gangs coming here, and you read stories. There was just, I think, two just last week about, you know, one was a woman in New Jersey who, yeah, she was out jogging or something in the morning, and she was uh, kidnapped and and ended up being killed by a a gang member who had been deported twice, back here again. That picture of President Trump working with the states that follow the law would have so many great impacts, including that people living in states that are san- that are sanctuary that won't help yeah. be looking at their own government saying, hey, why aren't you cooperating with the president?
1: And, and, and you know, people are getting say, well, we have Americans that can be crimes. So, so what, are you, what are you telling me? I should let a known child pedophile and a rapist who's an illegal alien run around the country when I have a perfect legal authority to kick him out of the country? Because otherwise I look like I'm being unfair to illegal aliens? How, does that even make sense in any normal way of thinking
0: about Not normal thing? <laughs> Not to anyone who thinks. Last thing you had in this article, and I actually don't. I, I want to hear your thoughts about this because I don't quite understand. Uh, or uh, I'd love to hear the upside of it all. But you were talking about the idea of the some people have agitated for abolishing. ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement right. Agency. And then there's another agency we hear about frequently, Customs and Border Protection, or they just call it Border Protection, or CBP. You're suggesting right. merging the two. So how? what, what would that do?
1: So um, before 9-11, before we created Department of Homeland Security, we had, we had two organizations. One was Injustice that did people um, coming across the border and in, interior and letting them come in. And another was an organization in, uh, that did commerce, I guess, that did goods, right? And what they did is they combined that into Department of Homeland Security. And they said, look, whether it's a truck or a person coming across the border, it's the same. And whether you're looking for illegal, uh, you know, people here illegal or, or illegal activity that goes to that, it's the same. So we, we combined the mission of, of people and goods together and so for example now you have one face of the border there's one organization at the border that scans cargo and people right but we divided them between the people working at the border which is CBP which is Customs and Border Patrol so the Border Patrol are the guys that police the points that police the land between the ports of entry and the customs people who are the people that run the ports of entry that look at your visa wave your car through look you know search trucks that's called CBP and the other one is called ICE, which is Immigration and Custom Enforcement. So they work in the interior of the United States and overseas. And what they are working on is enforcing U.S. laws, whether it's to do with the movement of goods um, or immigration laws, the movement of people. Um, when, the, when we first did that, I said, well, how does that make any sense? The, the, the missions of these two organizations are related. Why aren't they just one organization? And, and the answer was it's because they don't want to be. Right? I mean, <laughs> it's like, um, you know, it's like if we were before, like after 1944, it's like, w- explain to me again why the Army and the Navy don't both work for the same guy. Yeah. Well, because they like each being independent. Like, yeah, but when they fight on the battlefield, like the, the, they have to work together, right? I mean, the Navy takes you there, and then the Army goes off, and the Air Force flies overhead and drops the bomb. So you're all working together, right? So shouldn't you kind of all have the same boss and the same mission? Um, and they go, no, we'd rather not. We'd rather just do what we want, right? And so part of the problem, I think, with DHS is it's been hard to laser focus the resources on the mission of securing the border and all the things that contribute to that by having you know, different chiefs and different Indians working for different chiefs. And it would all be simpler to just put them all. If we did that, we would have one massive organization of over 60,000 people just focused on the mission of immigration and border security, that would be a powerful, powerful force. And I think, I think that's an interesting message to send the American people. Hey, here's your choice. These guys just want to abolish ICE. So the guys that actually enforce laws, right? that go after, for example, fraudulent, you know, goods that are imported, you know, drugs that are you know not efficacious, but they're just fake drugs. Um, uh, people that, that smuggle in child pornography, human, sm- human slavery, right? The people that do that, and, and they enforce the law of the We're going to abolish that organization. That, that'd be like saying, you, you know what? You hate getting tickets, right? Who does it? So we'll just abolish the police department. Problem solved.
0: Right? Exactly.
1: Um, exactly. And, and the president would be sending the opposite message. No, I'm not going to abolish them. I'm going to put that organization on steroids and make it the most powerful border force in the world.
0: I love the idea, and I, I lo- I'm so glad you had time to really walk through and explain both agencies and how much better it would be to have them working together. James Carafano, you just do some great writing, thinking, and I love talking with you today. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: We love your show, so have us, have a, not just me, but be a lot of great analysts at Heritage. Love the show, love to come back.
0: Thank you, sir, so much. And again, you can find find James Carrefour at heritage.org. And actually, if you go to heritage.org, put his name in, you can read all the articles. He just is a great writer. So appreciate his coming on so very much. And last thing for today I want to turn to is, I titled this section kind of militant transgenderism. It involves actually one person from Heritage I want to mention in a moment. But the more, the bigger point I want to make about this is completely changing subjects from our immigration discussion is this. It is amazing in America how strident the advocates for transgenderism have become in just the last few years i want to share one story that relates to google you know google the people use it as a verb i'm going to google you know how to find this or what this term means or what the, the history of something is it is the primary search engine used in america something like 75 percent of all searches are done on google and uh, sometimes you read as high as 90 percent so it's the you know it's the, it's the people who decide what you should get to see when you go online to try to look up, use a search engine to find information. So at Google, they had formed a, a um, they tried to form, rather, they, they actually never really got it off the ground, but they tried to form an organization within Google, a, um, a um, get the correct name of it, the Artificial Intelligence Ethics Panel. So Google was trying to form an ethics panel. For artificial intelligence and this story happened a few weeks ago but ties into a couple of things i want to mention i just i didn't ever get to the story in the show and i wanted to be sure and mention it so google creates this ethics panel on the panel are experts who can talk about experts who could ta- help them think through the issues issues ethical issues related to artificial intelligence well one prominent american invited by google to be on the panel is the woman who happens to be the president of the Heritage Foundation. She, Kay Cole James, has been the president, I think, maybe, I think it maybe is two years now. I meant to look that up, but, you know, has not been there a long time. But she's quite a senior, meaning she's been around in Washington a long time. She's been on the Board of Heritage for years. She's an African-American woman, extremely well-spoken, gracious lovely, and has and just been in the fight for conservatism, for conservative ideas. She's strong on the pro-life issue. So she, among other people, were named this Google panel on artificial intelligence, this ethics panel on artificial intelligence. Well, the open-minded employees of Google were outraged that Kay Cole James had a seat on this ethics panel. They actually wrote a, first of all, chicken hearted as they are, they wrote an anonymous online thing calling themselves, the name of the group of Google employees challenging Google about including Kay Cole James on the ethics panel, they call themselves Googlers against transphobia. So now this tran- transgenderism, this militant transgenderism, has gotten to the point where Google is now organizing groups this one, Googlers Against transphobia they had a statement online demanding that Kay Cole James be removed from the ethics panel. I want to lead you, read you what the, en- the ending of the, um, their online petition to Google was. Google cannot claim to support trans people and its trans employees, a population that faces real and material threats, and simultaneously appoint someone committed to trans erasure, as in eraser, erasure, to a key AI adversary advisory position. Given this, we call on Google to remove K. Cole James from his call, they have the acronym A-T-E-A-C. These are people who work at Google, who have the time to contemplate whether or not one person on an ethics panel related to artificial intelligence holds a position or is even open, open to a position, a policy position, that is not consistent with the gospel truth the left thinks they have on transgenderism. These are people, I'll remind you, who steer your search? Your searches online when you go online to try to look up any story. There, not just these people, but their thinking is what permeates Google. Is the thinking behind the search results that you get? But let me go back to the story. So they insisted because Kay Cole James sat in the panel, and she had had at Heritage Foundation, the, the organization, had sponsored a variety of um, programs that address policy issues, that's what Heritage Foundation does. They are a policy think tank. They hire experts like the one you just heard, James Carafano, obviously well-versed, brilliant guy, got his area of expertise, but Heritage has done all sorts of panels just allowing open discussion related to this transgenderism. They have permitted people on both sides of, of various issues arising out of transgen-, transgen can't speak English sorry transgenderism to be on these panels. They had they had a uh, left leaning midwife. This is Heritage and things they've done. So Heritage is open minded on, on and letting various people um, be part of their um, their panels. They had a panel called biology isn't bigotry isn't bigotry they had on that panel a lesbian veteran who'd campaign to end don't ask don't tell two conservative women um, a left-leaning midwife who was thrown out of her midwifery organization for refusing to use sex-neutral language in the profession This midwife wanted to say he or she, I assume, about a baby and the organization kicked her out because she's not allowed to even refer to the gender of a baby. I'm telling you the story about Google. So the answer from Google, they disbanded the entire ethics panel, just threw it all out. The Google employees were in such a hissy fit over the inclusion of K. Cole James on this ethics panel, it was easier for Google to shut down the whole ethics panel than to deal with their own employees. Employees acting entitled to tell Google, the corporation, who they're allowed to have on an ethics panel. And on my website, AmericaCanWeTalk.org, you can go and read this article I'm reading from, because part of what I wanted to say about this, the article that I'm in which I'm uh, reading these little excerpts, the person who's writing this is pointing out that this Militant transgenderist attitude is not just at Google. Google, this is a great story to give you the picture of it, but transgenderism, this idea that people aren't really the biology, that whatever they were born as, a boy or a girl, that their biology doesn't really determine their gender. So this movement, which only a few years ago was in its infancy, the idea that some people really—I I, know—I I am a woman, but I, I you know, I, I think more like a man or am a man. I really think I'm a woman, and permitting some kind of societal acceptance, trying to push for societal acceptance for adults to choose to change their gender, which is is legal I mean anyone can do that as an adult but this has gone this movement has gone from asking for acceptance asking for people to un- understanding that people struggle with gender dysphoria confusion about their gender has gone from asking for acceptance into a genuine cottage industry around the world in which it is not just advocated for they're not advocating for tolerance they're advocating for everyone on the planet to agree with a transgenderist mindset that says your gender has nothing to do with your biology nothing to do with your dna it is entirely you're thinking, and they don't just want to say, if a man wants to become a woman, or a woman wants to become a man, they should be left alone and not mocked. That's not the point. The point is, everyone on the planet must agree with them that the person actually was misgendered at birth, and that there's a far bigger problem with, trans, with a misgendering uh, than is presently known, that no one is allowed to question or challenge the wisdom, even of parents, indulging in small children and adult, tender adolescents deciding that they are really the opposite gender of what they actually are. And so it has become a militant, confrontational nobody can speak the other way no one can challenge it and no one's even allowed to think something that the transgender advocacy that the transgender advocates want people to believe no one's even allowed to think anything opposite of what they believe let alone say it let me just tell you there was a conference in um in the UK, they have the 2019 European Professional Association of Transgender Health Conference. So now, this is just April, last month of 2019, they have a conference in Europe, European Professional Association of Transgender Health Conference. One of the presentations was given by a UK charity called Mermaids, which promotes, pushes child gender transi- transition and gender ideology, child gender transition. They had up a, a, a board at the, at the presentation they made. They had up a slide so people could look at and understand what is it that the, um, what are symptoms, so how do you know if you're transgendered? So here are the symptoms. Other ways gender dysphoria may present is the title of this slide. Depression or, or anxiety, poor academic achievement, poor family relationships, frustration or anger, isolation. I mean, it goes on. These are symptoms that I'm going, I don't know the numbers, half of the world, maybe three quarters of the world have experienced in their daily lives. Not every day, all day, everyone, but people go through episodes, challenging times in their lives. Oh, one of them is loneliness is a sign of transgenderism, is a way that gender dysphoria may present. The point is, they're taking normal human behaviors, the normal ups and downs of human life, and attributing them to gender dysphoria. They're planting the seeds of transgenderism in young children in schools. I don't have time to get the story today, but I'm going to tell you on our website again, Talk.org. If you go on our website, You can see you can on the homepage under Show go down list of links. There's a story. This really great American writer Lloyd Marcus. He's a Black American conservative writer, and he wrote about going to just a family, an extended family dinner, and how numerous confrontation, confrontational conversations happen at dinner about people, essentially his family members or extended family members telling, uh, getting on board with the idea. You can't even question transgenderism as a real, true force. You can't even question. You can't even make a comment that might be interpreted as disrespectful. He recounts his whole family meal. You might want to read that article too. The point of all this is to say that this, this transgenderism has morphed from people wanting to be more open about challenges they were facing, people struggling in life, People looking for acceptance if they should choose as an adult to to transition from one gender to the other. It is now a belligerent, confrontational, intolerant, left-wing mindset. One point in this article, this is written by a leftist, by the way, this article. She said, this is the the, the energy, the passion, the intolerance on the part of the transgenderist advocates far exceeds... The advocates for same-sex marriage, for abortion, for all many many left-wing causes, for feminism—the advocacy, the intolerance, the belligerence engaged in by the cha- transgenderist advocates—tops them all. And I'll tell you, folks, it is the point of this advocacy, the point of the movement, the point of the the left-wing media mob pushing this. It is, again, displacing the idea that each of us has a God-given identity and that our God-given identity starts when we're born as a man or a woman or a boy or a girl. That's what this transgender, transgenderism ultimately gets to. It is uprooting the idea that each of us have some identity that, come, that, we, that is who we are from birth. It takes away the place of, of a creator, takes away the relevance of a creator, and instead just says, you are whatever the heck you think you are, and that is what you're entitled to be. So, my friends, you talk about what's going to really change this country, really, really upset the apple cart, is having anyone be able to to advocate for transgenderism and label anyone who dares to challenge that to be dismissed and shut down as intolerant. Can't let it happen. We all, each of us, need to to, feel free to speak up, say what we believe, and not be silenced by the transgenderist uh, censors who are trying to tell all of us what we can and can't think. And now, turning to one of my favorite parts of the show, I want to turn to our time together to talk about why it matters to you. I want to talk about these stories that we talked about today and why they matter to you. The California law targeting priests matters. The immediate target right now is catholicism but the trend is actually anti-first amendment and anti-christian the place in the and i'm not catholic but the place in the catholic church of the sacrament of confession is a place for expression of repentance and reformation driven by conscience these are christian goals the privacy and confidentiality between clergy and parishioners is foundational to achieving those goals disrupting the confessional, disrupts privacy and confidentiality. It undermines repentance, undermines reformation, suppresses the activity of conscience. And this is the power of the state, of California in this case, trampling on the rights of conscience, religious freedom, and puts religious freedom at risk, and tyranny is not very far away. Next. The, and this okay ex, the executive action on immigration. Data are overwhelming, irrefutable. There is a crisis at the southern border of America. 1 million more anticipated pe- border crosses in just the next year. 1 million people living in America. Who are the subject of final deportation orders ignoring our laws? Democrats' obstruction of all the efforts to strengthen security at the border is unconscionable, indefensible, can only be explained by an intent to destroy the country as founded, and I mean that one. I mean it. When the Democrats, you combine, won't secure the border, support sanctuary cities, won't support a border wall, won't support sending people home who have no right to be here, they're telling you they are happy to destroy the country. President Trump is entirely justified. In fact, duty bound to enforce the full extent of executive power to protect America and all Americans by securing the borders. Next slide, please. Google controls 75% of search activity on the web. Google employees insist on banishing what they consider transphobic attitudes because such attitudes to them are unethical. So if you want Google's ethics to determine your search, keep right on using Google, but it, but turning away from them is the only way to get around this, because it ends up Google's deciding America's morals, ethics, and values. Next happy slide, please. And that is it. Okay. So folks, I want to tell you, thank you so very much for tuning in to America Can We Talk every Monday through Thursday, at 3 p.m. Central Time. Email me at AmericaCanWeTalk@gmail.com, at gmail.com. And please, I'd love to have you like this Facebook page, share this show. If you're on YouTube, comment. I love your comments. I try to answer all of them. And my primary purpose in doing this show is to, to dig in deeply to talk about what defending America, the idea, really means. It means standing up for countless values that made America extraordinary and great. And I urge you to do that too in your lives because America matters.